Well, I don't know what I'm going to do now because everything I was going to teach this morning was in the song. <laughs> well done. As usual, thank you, my friend. Beautiful song. Every heart has a story to tell. Our theme, our annual study theme, which is being used by hundreds of unity churches across our country and around the world, is One Humanity, Many Stories. And Connie's song is a perfect depiction of why this is such a powerful theme. One of the things that I love about unity is that we don't have a liturgical calendar that we have to follow that says we're going to do the same stories at certain times of the year and walk through the same path every year. Every year in the fall, unity takes input from lots of people and looks for a theme, something we can study that will keep us relevant, keep us looking at the life that we're living right now, will give us an opportunity to explore our spiritual hearts in a relevant way, and will still allow us to stretch backwards into the, the teachings that have brought us where we are, and to look forward into teachings that we might bring out into the world. This particular theme, in my opinion, does both of those things, all three of those things. It keeps us relevant because every one of us has a story to tell. We have a new story today. Something will have happened by the end of the day that we can share with another person. We tell a story every time we interact with someone. We've been hearing stories since we were small children. Stories about how our parents walked uphill two ways and downhill the other way to get back home. We've been hearing stories from our grandparents, stories from the people we work for, stories of success and stories of failure and stories of heartbreak and stories of deep and profound love and stories of spiritual exploration. We've been hearing stories forever. And most often we think of them as someone else's story. That story belongs to my grandmother, my grandfather, my sister, my, my partner in work, my beloved. That story is a story that I'm an observer to. The thing about stories is that we're immersed in a story that we're telling ourselves all the time. We have a constant narrative in our head going on about who we are about the world that we share, about whether or not we're empowered to make something happen or disempowered, whether we're sovereign beings or we're not. We're writing a story about our life with every incident that happens. Because an incident is just an incident, isn't it? It's just a thing that occurred. What that means to us becomes the tapestry of our life. And we weave that tapestry with all kinds of stories. And we believe that they're true. We listen to other people's stories and we believe that they're true. The story that gives us the most trouble is the story that we tell. If we tell one story and we never question whether that story is true, our entire life is defined by that story. If we tell one story about 
the people around us, the people we share the planet with, their life is defined and their relationship with us is defined by that one story. So this morning, we're going to watch a short video by Chimimanda Ngozi Ardici. Boy, I had to really work to be able to say that name. It's a beautiful name. I actually had to look up how you pronounce it so I could say it right. And she is a brilliant woman from Nigeria who is an author and a storyteller. And we are going to hear from her this morning. I'm a storyteller, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. I grew up on a university campus in eastern Nigeria. My mother says that I started reading at the age of two, although I think four is probably close to the truth. So I was an early reader, and what I read were British and American children's books. I was also an early writer. And when I began to write at about the age of seven, stories in pencil with crayon illustrations that my poor mother was obligated to read, I wrote exactly the kinds of stories I was reading. All my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow. They ate apples. <coughs> and they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. Now this, despite the fact that I lived in Nigeria, had never been outside Nigeria. We didn't have snow, we ate mangoes, and we never talked about the weather because there was no need to. My characters also drank a lot of ginger beer because the characters in the British books I read drank ginger beer. Never mind that I had no idea what ginger beer was. And for many years afterwards, I would have a desperate desire to taste ginger beer. But that is another story. What this demonstrates, I think, is how impressionable and vulnerable we are in the face of a story, particularly as children. Because all I had read were books in which characters were foreign, I had become convinced that books, by their very nature, had to have foreigners in them and had to be about things with which I could not personally identify. Now, things changed when I discovered African books. There weren't many of them available, and they weren't quite as easy to find as the foreign books, but because of writers like Chinua Achebe and Kamara Laye, I went through a mental shift in my perception of literature. I realized that people like me, girls with skin the color of chocolate, whose kinky hair could not form ponytails, could also exist in literature. I started to write about things I recognized. Now, I loved those American and British books I read, they stirred my imagination, they opened up new worlds for me. But the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this. It saved me from having a single story of what books are. I come from a conventional middle-class Nigerian family. My father was a professor. My mother was an administrator. And so we had, as was the norm, 
live in domestic help who would often come from nearby rural villages. So the year I turned eight, we got a new houseboy. His name was Fide. The only thing my mother told us about him was that his family was very poor. My mother sent yams and rice and our old clothes to his family. And when I didn't finish my dinner, my mother would say, finish your food. Don't you know people like Fide's family have nothing? So I felt enormous pity for Fide's family. Then one Saturday, we went to his village to visit. And his mother showed us a beautifully patterned basket made of dyed raffia that his brother had made. I was startled. It had not occurred to me that anybody in his family could actually make something. All I had heard about them was how poor they were, so that it had become impossible for me to see them as anything else but poor. Their poverty was my single story of them. Years later, I thought about this when I left Nigeria to go to university in the United States. I was 19. My American roommate was shocked by me. She asked where I had learned to speak English so well and was confused when I said that Nigeria happened to have English as its official language. She asked if she could listen to what she called my tribal music and was consequently very disappointed when I produced my tape of Mariah Carey. (laughs) She assumed that I did not know how to use a stove. What struck me was this. She had felt sorry for me even before she saw me. Her default position toward me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way, no possibility of feelings more complex than pity, no possibility of a connection as human equals. I must say that before I went to the US, I didn't consciously identify as African. But in the US, whenever Africa came up, people turned to me, never mind that I knew nothing about places like Namibia. But I did come to embrace this new identity, and in many ways I think of myself now as African, although I still get quite irritable when Africa is referred to as a country, the most recent example being my otherwise wonderful flight from Lagos two days ago in which um, there was an announcement on the Virgin flight about their charity walk in India, Africa, and other countries. So after I had spent some years in the U.S. as an African, I began to understand my roommate's response to me. If I had not grown up in Nigeria, and if all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals, and incomprehensible people fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves, and waiting to be saved by a kind white foreigner. I would see Africans in the same way that I, as a child, had seen Fide's family. This single story of Africa ultimately comes, I think, from Western literature. Now, here's a quote from the writing of a London merchant called John Locke, who sailed to West Africa in 1561 and kept a fascinating account of his voyage. After referring to the black Africans as beasts who have no houses, he writes, they are also people without heads, having their mouths and eyes in their breasts. Now, I've laughed every time I've read this, and one must 
admire the imagination of John Locke. But what is important about his writing is that it represents the beginning of a tradition of telling African stories in the West, a tradition of sub-Saharan Africa as a place of negatives, of difference, of darkness, of people who, in the words of the wonderful poet, <coughs> Rudyard Kipling, are half-devil, half-child. And so I began to realize that my American roommate must have, throughout her life, seen and heard different versions of this single story. As had a professor who once told me that my novel was not authentically African. Now, I was quite willing to contend that there were a number of things wrong with the novel, that it had failed in a number of places, but I had not quite imagined that it had failed at achieving something called African authenticity. In fact, I did not know what African authenticity was. The professor told me that my characters were too much like him, an educated and middle-class man. My characters drove cars. They were not starving. Therefore, they were not authentically African. But I must quickly add that I, too, am just as guilty on the question of the single story. A few years ago, I visited Mexico from the US. The political climate in the US at the time was tense, and there were debates going on about immigration. And, as often happens in America, immigration became synonymous with Mexicans. There were endless stories of Mexicans as people who were fleecing the healthcare system, sneaking across the border, being arrested at the border, that sort of thing. I remember walking around on my first day in Guadalajara, watching the people going to work, rolling up to tears in the marketplace, smoking, laughing. I remember first feeling slight surprise, and then I was overwhelmed with shame. I realized that I had been so immersed in the media coverage of Mexicans that they had become one thing in my mind, the abject immigrant. I had bought into the single story of Mexicans, and I could not have been more ashamed of myself. So that is how to create a single story. Show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. One single story. She gives some really great examples, doesn't she? It makes you come to your heart and question, what is the one single story that I tell myself? About what place do you have such a story that you're afraid to travel? About what side of town will you not go to because you've been told a story about the people there? How affected are you if you encounter a homeless person or you see them walking down the streets of your neighborhood? How affected are you by the stories the media is giving you? Because the interesting thing about our lives right now is that we are so busy. We have so many things that we need to do that we have very little time to explore what we're told, to find out whether it's true or whether it's not true, to ask ourselves, do we believe what we just heard or we just read or someone just told us? Do we believe that's true or do we take the time to look into it, to explore facts 
And how in the world do you tell facts from fiction in today's world? Who actually has the truth? These are deep questions. They're powerful questions and they're questions we need to ask ourselves and they're why this study theme is so powerful. Because when we tell one story about any given person or set of people, we dismiss their humanity. We remove from ourselves and from them the pleasure of getting to know who they are. We do this with the people that we love the most because we've watched them grow up. We know the stories of their life and we've decided what the end result is. We've decided who they are, how they are, and what we can expect from them. And because of that, they live in a very narrow path with us. They walk in our life trying to show us who they are and not necessarily able to because we don't believe them. Everybody is changing. We've covered change. I've been here going now into nine years. We have covered the topic of change at least once a year, at least. Everyone is changing. We're all changing, but our stories don't change very easily. We are caught up in what we believe to be true about each other. So what is your story? Republicans are, fill in the blank. Democrats are, fill in the blank. We need a wall, we don't need a wall. What's your story? Have you even done your homework? What's the story that you picked up over here and are dumping on other people that you never even looked at because someone you trust said it was true. So you've decided that's good enough because you're too busy. We all do this. We all, don't, we all do this, don't we? We all move the story from one place to another, but perspective changes the story. If you are the person who lost your home because you had a heart attack and no insurance and you're living on the street under the understanding of civilization that you are now somehow a criminal, that you're going to steal from people, that you should not be trusted. And the fact that you don't have a home makes you a lesser human being. Your perspective is very different than those of the people who have a home, isn't it? Each of us is a single individual heart. Each of us has a story. And the only story that we can tell clearly is our own. We know what happened to us. And even then, if someone outside of us told our story, they would tell it differently. Ask your children. Ask your children to tell you who you are. They will tell you an entirely different story. Think about the story you have about your parents. It's your story about them. We don't know if it's true or not. We only know it's your perspective. It's really important for us to think about how we tell our stories because we know that our words are a prayer, aren't they? Our words seed the imagination of God. 
Our words create. They create the reality we experience. This is why we talk a lot of times about if you say you can, then the heavens open up and go, yay, that person can, let's help. And if you say you can't, if someone says to you, hey, would you like some help learning how to work out? Nah, I can't do that. I just can't. Okay, well, if you change your mind, let me know. There's nothing I can do. It matters the story that we tell. And while this theme seems like fun, and it will be, we're going to have a great time telling stories and exploring stories and learning about the stories that have shaped our culture and our lives and our personalities. We're going to have a great time with that. We're also going to explore what we accept as true and whether or not we're willing to have our entire perspective of life changed by taking apart the single stories of our world. I'm looking forward to having the time with you. I have some quotes for you. Sue Monk Kidd said, stories have to be told or they die. And when they die, we can't remember who we are or why we're here. Margaret Atwood said, you're never going to kill storytelling because it's built into the human plan. We come with it. Robert McKee is a professor who said, storytelling is the most powerful way to put ideas into the world. And Michael Margolis said, the stories we tell literally make the world. If you want to change the world, you need to change your story. The truth applies both to individuals and institutions. And finally, Jandy Nelson said, this is our story to tell. You'd think for all the reading I do, I would have thought about this before, but I haven't. I never once thought about the interpretive, the storytelling aspect of life, of my life. I always felt like I was in a story, yes, but not like I was the author of it or like I had any say in telling it whatsoever. You are the author of your story.